Well, let's continue to worship our God through the instruction of His Word and our sitting at His feet. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Judges chapter 4 this morning. Judges chapter 4. Last week, I preached an entire sermon on one brief verse. Uh, So wouldn't you just know it, that today we get to tackle... 55 verses stretched out over two long chapters. It's a lot to cover. I will warn you up front, so I ask that you bear with me. But this account, these two chapters, cover the next judge in this book, Deborah alongside Barak. What we see here is that Judges chapter 4 gives us the historical account of their exploits, while chapter 5 gives us kind of the supernatural or theological perspective with its poetry of praise. But to break it up so that uh, the reading is not so long, I'm just going to read chapter 4 now, and then I'm going to come back to chapter 5 as the relevant verses in that chapter come up. So Judges chapter 4, let's give our attention to God's Word, for this is the holy, inspired, inerrant Word of God. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Yabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagiomen. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the the son of Abinom from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking ten thousand from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Yabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And ten thousand men went up at his heels, and Deborah went with him. Now Heber, the the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Habab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Heriosh Hagiomen to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up! For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? 
So Barak went to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagayomen. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Yale, the wife of Hebar the Kenite. And there was peace between Yabin the king of Hazor and the house of Hebar the Kenite. And Yale came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent. If any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Yael, the wife of Hebar, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple till it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Yael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Yabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Yabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Yabin king of Canaan. And at the very end of chapter 5, we read as well, the land had rest for 40 years. This is God's word. Let's bow and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of it. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, for thousands of years, you have preserved this very story down to the letter for our instruction, the faith of your people. We ask that you would use this story once again today, this morning, for the good of our souls and for the glory of your name. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, in God's providence, before us today is a text that is perfectly fitted for the Christmas season that we're currently in. Would you believe it? Don't look at me like I'm crazy, all right? Yes, I know, Christmas is a time of celebration and joy. It's a time that we gather with loved ones, we exchange gifts, we, we go to parties, right? We have all of the holiday traditions. It is a festive time. And not just this, but Christmas is also a time in which we sing songs. We sing songs such as joy to the world and Phrases like peace on earth and goodwill towards men ring through the air. So what then, what in the world then, does this story with its warfare, with its bloody execution, have to do with Christmas? Well, think about what we're celebrating in Christmas or in Advent, if you prefer to use that. We sing joy to the world Because the Lord is come. Jesus has come into this world for us and for our salvation. Well, in the same way as we look at this story, Israel is oppressed until the Lord comes down and rescues his people. 
Deborah herself said it, does not the Lord go before you? Furthermore, just like Christ's birth is celebrated in song, likewise here in chapter 5, the coming of Yahweh and the deliverance that he brings is celebrated with song. In many respects, I think we could say that chapter 5 is that generation's joy to the world. Also, as we think about joy to the world, the hymn, what are we seeing in verse 2? Fields and floods, rock hills and plains, repeat the sounding joy. Right? Isaac Watts, the hymn writer here, is recounting how all of creation rejoices and sings and praises the coming of the King. Likewise, if you look at this song here in Judges chapter 5, we read in verse 4 that the earth and the heavens and the clouds and the mountains are spoken of as participating in the salvation and even the stars down in verse 20 as well. So there's some similarities there. But more than all of this, ultimately, Christmas centers on how God has fulfilled the promise that he made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis 3.15, it's called the, the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. Right after man brought sin and misery into this world, God looks at the serpent who tempted man, the one who started it all, and he tells this serpent, declares the gospel to him, in a sense, in Adam and Eve's hearing. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. At Christmas time, we are celebrating the birth of this seed of the woman. The one that God promised would come. And the one who we read of later in Scripture, Romans chapter 15, the one who crushed Satan's head at the cross. Thus, in the very same way, what do we see here in Judges? We see a woman who crushes God's enemy's head. We see a woman who, in chapter 5, verse 24, is called the most blessed of all women which is the very same phrase that is used of Mary in Luke chapter 1, when she is found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So what do we see here today but a story about Mary's forerunner, a foreshadowing of the advent of Jesus Christ, an anticipation of how God uses a woman to accomplish His plan of redemption. And thus, this morning, this is a story that does declare to us joy to the world. The Lord has come. This is a story where we see Yahweh come down as the mighty warrior who fights for His people. This is a story that shows us how God uses the most unlikely of instruments, two heroic women, to both begin and consummate this redemption. This is a story then that is tailor-made for the Christmas season. So with all this in mind, 
I want to walk through this passage and see how these themes come out. And see how relevant they are to our own celebration of Christmas, the own season of life that we are in thousands of years later. Yahweh, the one who goes before His people. So I have three points for you today. And the first is this. To begin with, we must see the reality of sin and failure. This is the context in which our story, the narrative, the backdrop upon which we are to see the playing out of these events. The reality of sin and failure. As we see, our narrative opens with a familiar sound. A familiar note, that is. The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. After Ehud died. And then in verse 2. Again, the Lord sold the people of Israel into the, the hand of Yavin, king of Canaan. Once again in this book, we see the cycle. We see the external restraint. The judge removed. And Israel, because of her inherent sinfulness, because that has not been addressed yet, once the external restraint is gone, she turns right back to the false gods again. And does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And so what does the Lord do in response to this? To wake Israel up, to get their attention, as God often does with His children, as He still does, even in our day, He brings hardship. He sells them into the hand of the wicked king. This is His doing. He is the one who sold them into the hand of King Yavin. We read here in verse 3 that King Yaman oppressed them cruelly for 20 long years. We are seeing this essentially. They are back in Egypt once again. A reversal of the Exodus has happened. They are being oppressed once again, which actually helps us make sense of chapter 5 when we see the, the Exodus imagery come up again, like the Song of Moses. So they're oppressed again, they're back in Egypt once again, as it were, and in their pain and misery, just like they did uh, in Egypt, they cry out to the Lord for help. But it's here then that we are introduced to Deborah in answer to their prayer. What's significant about this, of course, is that a woman would be the last person that we would expect to be Israel's deliverer at this moment. This is following this familiar pattern. We've already seen it in the first few judges. Othniel was a Gentile. Ehud was handicapped on his right side. Shamgar was a shepherd, most likely, and probably a pagan. And now God says, you, you thought those were unlikely? I can use a woman as well. Even in matters of warfare, because God delights to use what is weak in the eyes of the world to shame the wise. In our day, we're kind of used to women being in positions of power, but back then it was totally unheard of. At every level in society, women held kind of a lower standing. Their testimony wasn't applicable or admittable evidence in the court of law. Um, he held kind of a lower place in society at every level. And yet we see here, here is Deborah. She's described as a prophetess and a judge. 
as a prophet in this sense, she is God's spokesman. She's a chosen and set-apart instrument through which God revealed His will to the people of Israel. In verse 4, we read that she was judging Israel at that time. She was judging right from wrong. She was applying God's Word as a prophet and His will to specific situations. Of course, these were reserved for men in ancient Israel, according to the law. These were men's roles. These were roles that were specifically to be fulfilled uh, by most specifically the Levitical priests. So what then does this tell us? It shows us the reality of sin and failure at that time in the nation. Deborah is fulfilling these roles because clearly there is no man in Israel fit to do so. In a sense, we ought to see this as God shaming the Israelite men for their inadequacy. You might say, well, what about Barak here? I mean, doesn't he enter the scene as kind of a capable man? Isn't he a capable warrior, judge, right? He goes to battle. But notice in verse 6 that Deborah is the one that has to summon him. Then she has to assure him. Then she has to send him. Even on the day of battle, she has to say, up, go. Clearly, he's a bit timid and weak and incapable as well. We ought to see this. Is that there are no men in Israel who were willing to take the initiative to obey the word of the Lord and fight for the Canaanites. So it's a woman who is most concerned about obedience. Furthermore, even after she assures um, that God, uh, Barak, that God will grant the victory, how does he respond? Look in verse 8. If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. It's cowardly. Yes, he wins the battle, but he, but, but he is weak. He's got no backbone. He won't even go into the battle unless the leading woman is present. And so what I want you to see here is what we, we ought to see by the framing of this account is that Barak represents all the men in Israel at the time. There is no fit leader in the land. And yet, the Lord is gracious and merciful, and He still keeps His covenant promises. It should have been the men to rise up, to judge, to obey, but in the absence of such God will use anyone who is willing rather than let his promises fail. And so he raises up Deborah. Brethren, before we move on, this ought to be somewhat of a lesson and a rebuke to us. Now, there's a lot of controversy in the church today about women's roles and their place in the church. I fear, though, that so often we focus so much on the restrictions that the New Testament outlines regarding women's place of authority in the church. We focus on that so much that we neglect the proper role that God has given for men. It's almost as if we see women stepping outside their uh, appointed boundaries of their roles and as a cover 
excuse me, we attack them as kind of a cover to cover up, to hide how we men have failed in our proper roles. This is the day in which we live in, the day of the judges. I mean, wouldn't you agree that every man doing what is right in his own eyes is a perfect description of our nation as well? This is America. And what does this lead to? It leads to, just like the men here, just like with Adam in the garden, when man is left to himself, he becomes weak and passive, and he fails in his God-given role. I think this is instructive, because we live in a society of men who refuse to grow up. For example, with each passing year, it, it is amazing. The statistics reveal that more and more women are enrolling in college and in graduate school in less and less men. It's not, so, it's not true so much at Covenant, but by and large it certainly is. Women are starting to dwarf the number of men who are going to college. Why is that? Young men don't want to go to college nowadays. They don't want to get a job. They want to play video games all day. They don't want to pursue and marry the girl. They want to waste their life away looking at pornography. They don't want to make sacrifices or, or lead by example or take initiative or, or uh, do hard things to accomplish great things. They want to sit on the couch and watch TV or drink beer with their friends. This is... Society today, this is more and more and more reality, a byproduct of everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. And so rightly, in many respects, women nowadays look out, they see the, the adolescence of men, and they want to step up and they want to lead. And this account then should instruct us in this. Should instruct us of the danger of failing to take the initiative, the sinfulness of such, for our men, that is. This ought to instruct us, to, to encourage us, to lead by example, to fulfill our God-given roles in society and the church and the home by being strong men, even when it's difficult, even when there's a, an army, right, of iron chariots that are opposing us. Yes, God raises up Deborah out of mercy to deliver His people, but she is an indictment upon the nation. A nation that has glorious, gloriously failed in its duty. A nation that is full of weak and sinful men. And so go the men of a nation. So go the nation. And all that is necessary for evil to triumph, I'm sure you've all heard it, is for good men to do nothing. This is the message that we ought to see here. And this is the message that God wants to communicate to Israel, which is why in verse 9 He says uh, through Deborah, even though Barak is going to win the battle, he's not going to receive the glory. The Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. This is an indictment. This is a sin and the failure of the nation. Well, what do we see next then? That's the context. Secondly, then, we see the sovereign deliverance of the Lord. The sovereign deliverance of the Lord. 
And before we jump into the battle, I want you to notice how the narrator sets the scene, kind of builds the tension, right? There is a, a, a tension that won't be resolved until later. First, of course, we see this, that, that, that Deborah says that the glory is going to go to a woman. And this, you know, builds the tension that heads towards this surprise ending because at this point, we're not introduced to Yale, if we haven't read the end of the story, and we're thinking, oh, well, Deborah's going to be the hero of the battle here. But notice this other detail found in verse 11. Right before the battle, we get this seemingly random note. This note about Heber the Kenite separating and dwelling near Kadesh. Of course, as we read the end of the story, we know why this is here. But for now, I just want you to notice that this is a theme of God's sovereignty that the author wants us to see. The author wants us to see that God is pulling all the strings here. He is behind the details. Even the the seemingly random or insignificant details of a certain man moving to a certain region. And that ought to be instructive to us as we look at the big picture of this story. Everything in life does not depend upon us. I hope you don't believe that. That's unbelief. Because there is an all-wise, all-knowing God who sits above every wheel of motion. He is sovereign and in control of all things, even the very seemingly insignificant details of your life. Nothing in your life is random. Nothing is without purpose. Do you believe this? There's no softer pillow on which to lay your head on at night than knowing that particularly in times of sorrow, particularly in times of suffering and difficulty and trial, that God is sovereign and He is in control. And this strikes at the essence of what it means to trust Him and to worship Him, to confess Him as God. Not just someone who is like us, but God who has created upholds and sustains and ordains all things according to the counsel of His will. So let's notice how this plays out. This is the big picture, God's sovereignty. But notice how it plays out. We pick up here in verse 12 that Sisera, the general of Yabin's army, he finds out that that Barak is uh, gathering his men. And so he goes out with his 900 chariots of iron. I don't want you to be mistaken here as you look at the numbers. You may look here and say, okay, 900 chariots of iron up against 10,000 troops or men. Clearly, Israel has the advantage. That's a significant numerical advantage, right? But the truth is most certainly the opposite. Chariots would beat troops any day. Ground troops were no match for them at all. Specifically because also, as well, we read in Deborah's song that there were no weapons in the land. Clearly, uh, um, the king had, had taken all of Israel's weapons away, like we considered the, uh, the Philistines did last week, right? That's why Shamgar uses an ox goat. And most likely, you know, Israel didn't have a standing army. They're just gathering whoever signed up, right? Every capable man here. But also, you consider these iron chariots. That meant they had iron armor, 
or they had um, some sort of iron spikes attached to them. And, and this was a huge tactical advantage. It would be like you know, using tanks to go up against ground troops armed with sticks. It didn't matter how many there were. Even outnumbered 10,000 to 900, this was a suicide mission in every respect. Also, the location puts this Israel at a huge disadvantage. We read in verse 7 that Deborah says the Lord will draw out Sisera to the river Kishon. Or Kishon. This river was most likely a, a dry creek bed most of the time. It was a nice flat area. And of course, with a flat area, what do you have? Chariots have the greatest advantage there. And so as we consider all the details, this is... Israel walking into a slaughter. It's a suicide mission. And that's why I think, you know, Barak says uh, to Deborah, I'll only go if you go. You know, it's like a double dog dare, right? Like, I'll do it if you do it. (laughs) But it's crazy. But the Lord is sovereign over the battle. And in verse 14, uh, we come to the central point of this entire scene. In fact, uh, this uh, entire episode is a, is a chiasm. If you're not familiar with that, it means that, that um, uh, the center of the chiasm, the center of kind of uh, the parallels is the main point in the story. And the central point of this story is found in verse 14, where Deborah says to Barak, Up for this day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. The Lord goes out before you. Up. Barak, she says, get off the couch. Stop sitting on your hands. Don't you know that the Lord goes out before you? Don't you know that as you look out and you see this scene, which is to the eyes of man, a slaughter. Don't you know that the Lord is, goes out before you and thus you have the advantage? Look with the eyes of faith. This is the point that Barak did not get. This is the point that Israel did not get. That the Lord goes out before His people. That the Lord is mighty in battle even when the odds are stacked against us. We must see, just as Israel must see, that the Lord fights for us too. That the Lord goes out before us. That we don't rest in the strength of man or the legs of a horse. But in the power of the Lord. And so we read here in verse 15 that the Lord routed Sisera and all his army fell. Again, the Lord here is the hero of the story. Again, the Lord is the warrior who really gains the victory and receives the praise here. And in this, we ought to see that God here is absolutely sovereign over every detail. And He sets everything up. In fact, we'll consider this more in a moment. Everything up so that Israel can walk away with the victory. However, at this point, I do want to answer a question that perhaps you might have. If it is the Lord who goes out before us, if it is the Lord who is sovereign in the battle, then what is our role? 
what role do we play? And I think this is an important question, particularly as we consider that, you know, the passivity and, uh, 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 passivity and the complacency of the men in Israel reflected their sin, right? What role then does our obedience play in the sovereignty of God? Are we to just wait around and wait for victory? Well, I think if we focus on Barak here, we have the answer to our question. It's interesting. Even though the two women play the prominent role in this deliverance, it's Barak who is mentioned in the so-called Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. That's not fair, right? (laughs) But he is the one who is spoken of there. It's the faith, the example that we are to emulate and follow. And so how, how then does this weak and fearful Barak get set up as an example of genuine faith? Because he believes God's word and obeys it. Deborah is the prophetess, right? She speaks and reveals God's word. Even her name, Deborah, it sounds very similar to the Hebrew word debar, which means word. It's a common word uh, phrase that's used, the word of the Lord, the debar of the Lord. And so in a sense, I think she's kind of personified here in the sense that she is God's word and Barak hears the word and he obeys. And thus his obedience is an indicator of his true belief in God's word. And that is what is worth imitating. That is what the writer of Hebrews harps on. What this means for you and me is that yes, God is absolutely sovereign, but this in no way in no way excuses our responsibility. In no way it excuses being complacent or lazy or failing to take the initiative. Yes, God is the one who is present with us. He is the one who goes out before us. He is sovereign in every detail of life. But brethren, He uses means. He is the first cause, but He uses means and instruments in human beings to accomplish His purposes. And thus we are to read this as well and see that God has revealed to us His commandments. He has revealed to us His Word. And there is no room for us to sit on the couch ourselves, to make excuses, to wait for Him to zap us, because we are called to get up and obey, knowing that the Lord is with us. We are called to offer Him prompt, wholehearted, full obedience. To not just confess Him as He is the one who is sovereign over everything, but also to say He is also our Lord and our Commander. Yes, the the victory is the Lord's, and we only receive it by faith. But that faith works itself out in love. That faith manifests itself in obedience to the Word of God. And this is the sovereign deliverance of God. And our participation in that, our part in that, on display. We ought not to miss this as we look at this narrative. Well, third and finally then, let's come to the conclusion of the narrative as we see that God brings salvation by the hand of a woman. 
God brings salvation by the hand of a woman. Let's pick up the narrative in verse 15. We read that the Lord routed Sisera, all his chariots, and all his army fell. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. Now first you might wonder, if you haven't cheated and looked to chapter 5, you might wonder, why did Sisera flee on foot? He's got a chariot for crying out loud. Well, the first clue to this is in this use of the word routed here in verse 15. Routed is, is a unique word, and it really means to make confusion. And frequently in Scripture, this word is used to describe situations when God brings a thunderstorm, which, is, was, which, which isn't exactly a, a common occurrence in that part of the world. And this is exactly what Deborah's song recounts here in chapter 5. We read in verse 4 and 5 and in verse 21 that there was a huge rainstorm, that there was an earthquake, probably with a landslide with, with flash flooding, and that the Kashan River swelled, overflowed, and flooded. And thus we see here that at the exact moment that Sisera's forces were speeding down into the valley, God in His sovereignty brought a massive thunderstorm that saved His people. The chariots would become stuck in the mud and the mire. The horses were probably frightened beyond use. And so they got out of their chariots because they couldn't move. And Israel slaughtered them. It would have been like a great turkey shoot, a complete rout as they got down out of their chariots and tried to get away. And so, in a sense, Sisera's tactical advantage with his chariots washed down the drain. God is sovereign over every detail, even the weather here, to bring about the victory and the deliverance of his people. What's ironic about this, of course, is that Baal was the rain god of Canaan. Once again, Yahweh is mocking the false gods of the Canaanites. He's showing that he's the true God of the storm. It's something that appears again and again and again throughout this book. And so with his chariot stuck in the mire, Sisera jumps out to flee. Barak is hot on his heels. And this brings us to the climax of the story. In verse 17, Heber the Kenite appears again. We're told here that there was peace between Yabin the king of Hezor and the house of Hebar the Kenite. We're finally told here why it is that he was mentioned back in verse 11. Why it is that it noted that he moved up near Kadesh. So Sisera flees and he presumes that he'll find safety here because of the peace. But once again... The sovereign plan of the Lord is working out. Yale now enters the scene, stage left, and she invites Sisera to turn aside, and he does so, presuming again that he's going to be safe there. But at this point, I want to pause for a second, and I want to prepare you for what's to come. This is a very odd exchange. You know, Yale inviting him into the tent, offering him milk, covering him with a rug, and I really want to argue that there's more to this than meets the eye. 
Why is it that Sisera knew that he was safe with Yale? Why does he go straight to her tent? Why does he trust her? Well, if we look at this closer, um, it seems that there was a, some sort of sexual relationship between Yale and Sisera. And you might ask, well, how in the world do we know this? How in the world do we get this from, from the, the words that we have here? I don't want to, I'm not going to go into all of the detail here. There's a, there's a lot of things that support this interpretation. But I do want to note a few things because it really gives us insight into kind of what's going on both in Israel and uh, with, this, uh, with this redemption as well here, the salvation that God is working out. How do we know this? Well, the first argument I'll give you is that the Jewish commentaries um, collected in the Talmud clearly understand this as a sexual encounter. Now, of course, that's not inspired scripture, but it does give us insight into how the Hebrews understand their own language and the euphemisms that are often used to describe such events. But also, this perspective also fits into the larger kind of narrative as a book of a whole, as as, as the whole book. Scandalous and depraved sexual activity happens all throughout the book, in almost every single episode. In fact, there are some clear parallels here between Samson and Delilah, for example. But ultimately, uh, this entire section is full of very unique, odd vocabulary. Um, And it appears to be euphemisms to describe scandalous acts. The Jews were notoriously shy and bashful about explaining things in detail. So we have here Yale calling Sisera to turn aside. And one commentator has noted how this echoes the adulterous woman who entices young men in Proverbs chapter 7. Turn aside, my husband's away, there's safety here. Then in verse 18 we have this odd phrase about how she covered him with a rug. This is the only place in the Bible where this word covered is used. And the word literally means to rest One's weight upon. It's its most literal meaning here. So it could be a a euphemism of sorts. She's covering him by climbing on top of him. She's putting her weight upon him. Speaking of a sexual encounter. But if you're skeptical here, even at this point, look with me at chapter 5, verse 27. When Deborah speaks and sings of this account, she says this. Between her feet... He sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet, he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Dead. There's this double emphasis here on how he was between her feet. Clearly, the imagery is that that Yale was on top of him and, and she was in the dominant position, as it were. And this is the theme of the entire book as a whole, and particularly this chapter, most specifically, in how women essentially dominate the men and take control because of how weak and sinful and passive that they are. That's why in verse 20, Sisera essentially says, if anyone asks you if a man is here, say no. The writer subtly making a joke here. No, there really isn't a man here. Not a real man. Sisera is, well, a sissy. 
The writer is mocking God's enemies, just like he did with the fat king Eglon. And so we read in verse 21, the climactic event. She took a tent peg, she took a hammer, she went softly to him, she drove the peg into his temple until it went into the ground. Actually, the word temple there is literally mouth, so probably through the mouth, down to the ground. It would have taken great passion and anger to do that. Um, Even if, unlikely it was an iron peg, it probably was wood, but even still it would have taken a lot of force there. So that he died. He's so exhausted from fleeing, probably exhausted from the sexual encounter, that he takes, she's able to take this tent peg and slaughter him without resistance. What's funny about this story, again, there's a lot of humor here. The setting up and taking down of tents was uh, the work of a woman in that culture. So, you know, he's essentially slain with a household appliance, right? This is like the robber being killed with a frying pan over the head, okay? It is very, very humiliating. Just think about how this is, in general, a feminist nightmare as well, right? We have a housewife who's tending her tent, and she kills a, common, she kills a man with a common tool of her domain, right? What is this? Yale is acting like the man. She is domineering the man here. She's on top of him. She penetrates him with a tent peg. She is the one who slaughters God's enemy like the warrior that the man should have been. This is a salvation that's brought by a woman. But there's one last triumph here. Hang with me. One last triumph here in this woman. Excuse me. One last triumph in this story by women that perhaps you may have missed. I want us to look at the climax of Deborah's song here in verse 28 through 30. Look with me there if you have your Bible. What do we see here but the mother of Sisera waiting for him to return? What do we read? Verse 28, out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? At first it might be like, oh, well, this is kind of sad. She wants the return of her son. But keep reading verse 29. Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. See, this is another appearance of women in this story. We have Deborah, we have Yale, we have the mother of Sisera, we have her wise princesses. They rationalize in verse 30 why it is that he hasn't returned yet. And they say, haven't they divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. This is where we see that there's more to Sisera than meets the eye. Practice in warfare was to plunder and to divide the spoil. A womb or two for every man. This refers to the the common rape and the capture of sex slaves from the people they conquered. Sisera's mother and her princesses knew this. They were okay with this. They, oh, that's why he's delayed. This kind of gives you an insight into what the Canaanites were like. 
And thus, at the end of this day, we see that Sisera, the abuser of women and a slave to his own lust, is himself abused by a woman, leading to his death. Sisera, the one who captured weak women for his own lust, was himself finally captured and conquered by his own lust. Just like the fat King Eglon, right? We considered how he lived by his belly and then he died by his belly. Just like Sisera and Yabin lived by the chariots and then they died by the chariots. Well, here we see that Sisera lived by his lust and so he died by his lust. His lust cost him his life. Again, Proverbs chapter 7 coming back into play here. The woman says, come on in. He doesn't know that her steps lead down to death. The author of Judges is mocking Sisera here. He's stripping him of his manhood, of his honor. He presents him as this stereotypical Canaanite, foolish and gullible, driven by base instincts. And this is to prove and to show that the Israelites, the Canaanites, were no match for the Israelites if they would just but obey the Lord. Yale is the hero who slayed the enemy. Yale is the one that God raised up for salvation. No, her acts weren't exactly commendable. It's not the ideal type of judge or the ideal type of deliverer, one who uses seduction and adultery But this just shows the state of Israel at the time. There is no one fit to lead. And so there is a yearning, a longing, a begging, a crying out for a king. One who will come in righteousness and will conquer with righteousness and justice. Well, brethren, let's bring this to a conclusion. I've gone on too long. But what shall we take away from this as we circle all the way back around? I want you to see how women are the true heroes of this story. Deborah foretells everything, and it comes true, all of it. Her song of praise in chapter 5 is evidence of her faithfulness. Barak, even though he, he, he is timid, he eventually obeys. He follows the woman into battle. And Yale then is set up as a contrast to Barak, the one who rises up, the one who with great boldness and great faith more than anyone else in this story, to slay the enemy, even though her manner of securing it is scandalous. But brethren, it's in this way, through the salvation that comes by the hand of this woman, that we're brought back around to where we began. This is a story that foreshadows and anticipates everything that Christmas is all about. It was through the woman that Satan used, worked his deception, and brought sin into the world. And thus, it's through a woman that God uses to bring a Savior into the world. Just as Yale crushed Sisera's head, Mary, the mother of our Lord, brought forth the seed that crushed the head of Satan. Just as all of nature participated in that battle to rout Sisera, we read in verse 20 of chapter 5 that from heaven the stars fought. What do we see with the birth of Christ? But the star that appears 
leads the wise men to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. All of nature is participating in this battle. Just as the Lord came down and delivered Israel and judged her enemies, we too sing, sing, the Lord is come. As His coming, as described in the New Testament, is ordained, is appointed for the, fall, for the rise and fall of many. We know that Christ comes to save His people, but to those that are not actively trusting and resting in Him by faith, He has come in judgment. The Lord is come. The most amazing part about this salvation, though, is how Sisera here represents us in many respects in our sin. He represents who we are by nature. He represents us in our lusts, reaping what we sow, receiving the just punishment of what is due to us. And really, you know, Israel's no better, of course, as we've seen. But the wrath of God falls on Sisera, God's agent. Yale takes a peg and pierces him to death. But oh, how this foreshadows the cross. How Jesus took our sin and our shame. He took our lusts. And he himself was pierced. He himself was crushed. He received the execution of judgment as God's enemy in our place, as our scapegoat, as the Lamb of God, so that our sins might be paid for, so that we might be given forgiveness, so that we might be shown grace. This is the gospel in the story. This is the Lord Jesus Christ on the pages of the Old Testament. And this is the hope that we have even now today. The joy to the Lord, the Lord has come. He has taken our burdens and our sin. And He has given us righteousness, forgiveness, and eternal life. Well, may God give us the eyes of faith, hearts to believe, and His Spirit, the willingness to obey in light of everything we've seen and heard this morning. Let's pray.